0: Why not just fast and make everything better? It seems intuitively to make sense, but when the liver is working, it needs various building blocks and substrates, getting adequate protein while limiting total fuel intake, but still getting a lot of micronutrients. I wouldn't encourage the listeners to expect that a normal day's maintenance diet would achieve those goals. You know, it really does take doing things in a way that deliberately is shortchanging your fuel needs, but still supplying these building blocks.
1: friends. I am so excited that my new podcast is finally here. Boy, it has been a long time coming. I am the co-host of another podcast, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and I decided to create this new podcast, the Melanie Avalon Podcast, so that I could finally go on all the crazy tangents (laughs) that I go on in that other podcast. So this podcast, I'll be interviewing the top experts in the health and wellness world, and we'll explore many fascinating health topics all of my obsessions, all of this is in a journey to hopefully become a healthier, happier human being and share that with listeners. So the show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com metabolism-reset. And that's where you'll find all the links to everything we talked about, all the extensive notes, everything will be there. You can also go to melanieavalon.com I like for all of the stuff that I like. More on that in a bit. And lastly, I am honored to be part of the Himalaya Network. And Himalaya, they make an amazing podcast app, which I personally use every single day of my life. Uh, It lets you follow different shows, make your own playlist, easily look up episodes. It's just honestly the best thing ever. And if you follow my show in the Himalaya app, you will get early access to the show 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. Also, if you do enjoy this show, it would mean the absolute world if you would take a brief moment to write a review on iTunes and let others know what you think. Since this is a very, very new show, don't have many reviews yet, so those will really, really help out. So those are so appreciated. Before we do begin, I wanted to tell you a little bit about some of my favorite products in the world that I just want to share with everybody and also which help make this podcast possible. So first of all, we have Juve Red Light Devices. guys. Juve is amazing, (laughs) absolutely amazing. So they make near and red infrared light therapy devices. So red light therapy is really interesting because it seems like it can miraculously fix almost anything. And that's because it sort of can. (laughs) It has to do with the mechanism of action. Basically, red light therapy and near infrared therapy works on the cellular level to actually change how your cells generate energy. And when your cells are properly generating energy everything will work better. So we see in studies that red light and neurofed therapy can help with pain relief, inflammation, muscle soreness after exercise. It can help with mood. It can help with your circadian rhythm. It can give you fantastic skin. You can use it for targeted fat loss. I'm not even kidding. The light can actually make fat cells more porous. So then the fatty acids leak into the bloodstream, which you can then burn them off. And I do have a special offer for listeners. So if you go to juve.com slash Melanie Avalon, And use the code melanie avalon you will receive a free gift from juve so teaser we're going to talk about alcohol in a little bit and i personally think that alcohol and wine definitely has a place in a healthy lifestyle but only if you're consuming alcohol or wine that is free of toxins free of mold low alcohol low sugar and also organic and free of pesticides did you know they recently did a test in california And all wines, even organic wines, tested for pesticides. That's how pervasive pesticides are in our environment. Thankfully, there is one company that makes wine that I can wholeheartedly advocate. If you think you can't drink wine, you can possibly drink this wine and wake up without a hangover or negative side effects. It's crazy. So the company has Dry Farm Wines. They actually go all throughout Europe, not the U.S., because none of the wines in the U.S. meet their standards. And they find the wineries practicing organic practices I make wines that are free of toxins, free of mold, low alcohol, low sugar, and truly supportive of your health. And I do have a special offer for listeners. If you go to dryfromwinescom slash Melanie Avalon and use the code Melanie Avalon at checkout, you will receive, wait for it, a bottle for a penny with your first subscription. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi friends. So I am thrilled to bring you today's guest who I have the personal honor of calling a friend, and he is just an amazing, wonderful author, doctor. There's just so much here. (laughs) So I am here with Dr. Alan Christensen. He is a naturopathic endocrinologist. He has a focus on thyroid function, specifically Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, and Graves' disease. And you might be familiar with him because he is a New York Times bestselling author. He has quite a few books. He has The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease, he has the adrenal reset diet and he also has the most recently released the metabolism reset diet and i originally came to dr christensen's work through the adrenal reset diet which i loved it's a wonderful book exploring a lot of the adrenal and energy and health problems we have today but even i'm even more excited about his most recent book the metabolism reset diet which just addresses So many topics, so many issues. I am thrilled to jump into the nitty gritty of it all. So thank you for being here, Dr. Christensen.
0: Hey, Melanie. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to be here with you.
1: So I thought to start things off before we get into the actual topics, if you wanted to tell listeners briefly about your own history and what led to where you are today with your current practice, your work, everything that you do.
0: Yeah, kind of a odd story. I was a wannabe. I don't know. I, my big love was space. And I think I realized that the astronaut path just wouldn't work for various reasons. So astrophysics was the big love. And I really got sidetracked because of my health issues. Uh, just, I guess, the social struck stress of being a fat kid when it was less common. That was probably the biggest single factor and then just frustration about not being able to do basic physical activities like you know run and gym and climb rope and stuff like that and uh, yeah and i really saw firsthand how how much life can suck when your body doesn't work right you know and how when things aren't you don't look the way you want and you can't do the things you want to do and and through through reading through finding information And through trial and error of implementing it and realizing that, oh, wow, it it won't work if I don't do it, if I don't stick with it, And, and lots of trial and errors, you know, I had the experience of realizing that information can change your health, and that can just radically change the experience of your life, and that information may not come from the channels that you might expect. So, yeah, it was powerful stuff, and it made me want to just dedicate my life to helping sort out the best information and really get that to people in ways that could help them.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's a common thread with so many people who end up in the health sphere. It comes out of their own health challenges. I like to call them challenges <laughs> and um, <laughs> the journey to, you know, get things functioning correctly and in a, a healthy way so that you can live your life and pursue your passions. So, yep, yeah, I definitely relate to all of that. <laughs> to get into the actual topics, so like you were just saying, body weight, health issues, very common for so many people. Why do you think so many people today do struggle with all of these issues?
0: You know, it's it's certainly on the uptick. It's been a, a big trend and it's pretty unprecedented. Uh, I don't think we really have one answer, but just in many ways, modern life is set up to make it more easy for us to do things as we wish and not be held hostage to a certain schedule and also in that we can have easier access to more calorically dense food for less work you know and that's (laughs) over the arc of humanity and survival those were all noble goals but now we've gotten to the point to where these things work against us you know our innate sense of how much food we need uh, how we respond to the modern timing of life the modern chemicals of life it's just really a, a perfect storm and I've seen a lot of work trying to find a factor, and it's it's undoubtedly multiple factors together. I was just about
1: to say it's like a perfect storm, and then you took the words from my mouth. <laughs> uh, so in your most recent book, The Metabolism Reset Diet, what is the, quote, metabolism? Because I think that's a very <laughs> vague concept to a lot of people. People think that it's very specific or that you you know burn a set amount of calories per day, but- what actually is the metabolism, and does it change?
0: It it can change. Uh, super quick aside. I think I've done about 160 interviews on this topic so far. And if I were to give an award for the most the questions that reflected the best understanding of the book, you'd get the award. You got really good questions here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so back back to the question. So yeah, so two facets of it. One of which is just how fast your body converts food and fuel into energy, just the the basal metabolic rate. And the other facet of it is how much the body can adjust that, you know, how readily can the body adjust that as our needs change, you know, if our food intake is a little higher or lower, or if our output is a little higher or lower, how well can we still maintain steady energy and steady weight? And then the last part, it, it sure can change. So stations of life, you know, some of the biggest things can be like pregnancy and, Menopause, perimenopause, changes in menstrual cycles, those are huge. Uh, sleep status is a big one. You know, overall body composition, general stress load, these, among many other factors, can influence all that.
1: Yeah, I think people often think that the metabolism is this fixed thing that they can, you know, permanently change it one way or the other for better or for worse. But something that's really interesting is do you know the, the Greek word that it comes from? I do not. It comes from the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but metabole, I think. Mm. And um, that actually means change. Oh, that's cool. So <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, motivating to know that it is something constantly in flux. And something that you discuss in your book a lot that was a big takeaway for me was that the the metabolism, and we'll get into the liver in a little bit, that it should in the correctly functioning way, adjust to our calorie intakes and in the food yeah. that we eat. That's what, something that I really love. like, basically, we, like we should, in theory, be able to handle different calorie intakes, less, more different food types. And um, in the ideal state, that's what we'd be in. But obviously, things <laughs> things don't always work out that way. So when people see this book, The Metabolism Reset Diet, they might think it's going to be all about metabolism. But really, what you really go into in amazing detail and that I'm so excited to pick your brain on is the liver and how the liver is involved in the state of the metabolism. So quick overview, what does the liver actually do? Yeah, I guess I'll start with that. <laughs>
0: Yeah so just to close i guess one loop that i left open those two parts of metabolism just how fast it is and how flexible it is the flexible part can change a lot more and that's a perfect segue to the liver because that's a big part of how the body can adjust how flexible metabolism is so the liver pretty wild but our our body's chemistry we think about that a lot and by and large that's the chemistry of our bloodstream you know these fluids that flow between our cells if you could go way back really fast through the arc of evolution and like show a photo of your, your dad, your grandpa, your great grandpa, and tag on, you know, a few million greats, eventually you're going to see a fish <laughs> and eventually you'll see something smaller than a fish. And at some point of that, our chemistry was our, our location. You know, your chemistry was not separate from that of the seawater in which our little cells were floating and we had to be floating in the right area to have the right chemistry. But fast forward through the arc of evolution and especially leaving the ocean, you know, we became almost like like astronauts leaving the ocean, but holding this environment within us, like our skin is holding in seawater. And I think about like an aquarium with fish, you know, you've got to filter that. You've got to add things and take things out and change the water. So by and large, that's our liver. And there's just tens of thousands of little reactions going on constantly that are adjusting our body chemistry you know the chemistry of our bloodstream to keep it in in alignment with what our current needs are
1: so basically the liver is in charge of i mean everything in a way i mean it's processing <laughs> everything that we're taking in providing these nutrients dealing with toxins all of these things
0: there's There's things that we need to have, there's things that we need to get rid of, and there's things that we need to change. And the liver's really relevant to all of that, and those involve nutrients, those involve immune cells, um, amino acids, hormones, uh, brain brain chemicals, you know neuropeptides. And as a generalization, all of this stuff ultimately comes from food, of course, but we don't eat constantly, yet we use things constantly. And there's never a time where a meal gives all the building blocks we need for a big unit of time. So the liver is constantly taking things in from our meals and warehousing stuff and then accessing that later on between meals or if a meal is higher in one thing but lower in another thing and doling things out and converting things to keep the chemistry right.
1: What is the timeline on that? Like As far as the nutrients that the liver requires to do all these processes, does it store nutrients for you know an extended period of time that it can call on, or do we need to be supplying these nutrients on a, a daily basis, an hourly basis? What does that look like?
0: As a generalization, the, the slowest would be some of the uh, fat-soluble vitamins and minerals, things like the ADEK, and then some minerals, especially iron, copper. These can store for longer periods of time. Uh, is many of the water-soluble nutrients have faster turnover. A few of them are stored longer. You know, B12 is a case in point for that. So it's all different, but that's a generalization as far as some nutrients going faster than others. And hormones are not different. It's kind of funny. We think a lot about the importance of the glands in making hormones. And for sure, they're the source of that. But by and large, they make a lot more than we ever need, and they make a lot more in an inactive state. So the liver is also having effect on some storage, but a lot of conversion for for hormones as well, and getting them correct.
1: We often hear of this concept of liver detox. <laughs> it's like such such a trending word. <laughs> um, I use it almost hesitantly because I think it comes with a lot of you know baggage of people thinking that it's either the bee's knees and everything, or that it does nothing. You know that it's all just. <laughs> something silly that you're, people often say, oh, the liver naturally detoxes. We don't need to do a liver detox. What are your thoughts on liver detox? Does the liver reach a point where it is quote clogged and needs to be detoxed?
0: Yeah. I I love the, the nuance you prefaced that question with. The funny thing is a lot of the things, as far as toxins or waste, we're concerned about most of them that accumulate in the body don't really accumulate in the liver. You know, they may be circulating in the body and stuck in the body, and that can be stressing the liver, but yeah, they're not so much in the liver. The liver can get itself clogged, but by and large, when I'm talking about that, it's more so a buildup of just unspent fuel, you know, fatty acid byproducts. And as they accumulate, they just make the liver's job harder for structural reasons and chemical reasons. By structural reasons, you can think about the liver like a filter, like a a filter that's You know, an oil filter where oil gets pushed in one end and has to flow out the other end. If the oil becomes too thick or the spaces become uh, just filled up in some way, it takes more pressure and the oil can't come through as well. Or if it does come through, it's not filtered as thoroughly. And then chemically, when there's a lot of unspent fuel there, that's a source of chemical irritation and free radical damage because the liver cells may not have room to hold on to all of that. So yeah, the main thing we get clogged with is just extra fuel more than anything.
1: I think that is such a fascinating paradigm shift in viewing the role of the liver. I'm sure there are still, like you said, there can be toxic buildup, but switching from this idea that it's all about the toxins in the liver to this idea that you discuss in detail all throughout your book of too much fuel, which is just such a fascinating concept. So how are the various food substrates that we take in, protein, carbs, fats, ketones, alcohol, how are they processed by the liver? And do they all equally build up in the liver and quote, clog it? Or what does that look like?
0: <laughs> well, at the end of the day, I remember I remember the classic thing about parents saying, don't worry if your peas get in your gravy because it all goes in the same place. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's kind of like that for the liver for the bulk of that stuff. We think a lot about, Carbs, fats, ketones—something being good or something being bad—and they're they're really all energy dense molecules. They're all things that can be a source of oxaloacetate, which can be used in energy reactions. And just like your car, you know, if the gas tank is already full, um, I actually did this thing like a couple of months ago. I was—we've got three cars that my wife and my son and I use—and. I know she was going to use the Jeep to haul some furniture, and I had seen that it was lower in gas. So I'm going to make a quick trip down and fill the Jeep up so she's got it. I don't, I don't know. I just like to fill the gas tank for her. So I went and did that, and I I put the the gas the nozzle into the tank, and immediately it shut off like it was full. I'm like, well, shoot, what's up? So I you know started pumping again, and now it's overflowing. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I... You know, you customize stuff on a Jeep, right? So I got the custom gas cap and stuff. I said, shoot, did I put something together wrong back when? Is there something loose in here? And, <laughs> and after thinking about it really, really well, I realized she filled it up already. <laughs> I was a turnip for pour gas and that it didn't need it. So that's kind of what happens. You know, all these things can become like gasoline to a car. And how well the liver does with them is a function of how much the liver needs and any of those things in excess can cause issues. There's really two storage places. There's glycogen and triglyceride, and all those can make triglyceride, carbs can make glycogen. And once all the storage is filled up, any extra just becomes harmful stuff, like the gas that was running down onto my foot that day.
1: (laughs) That is hysterical. And also I've done that before where where the gas actually starts coming out. It's the worst. (laughs) Speaking of toxins. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However... I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-fred light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health So I, I do have a quick question that I'd like to clarify as well. So the actual detoxification phases of the liver, because you talk in the book about the activation and the conjugation phases, how do those work as far as processing toxins and things like that? And I think I think when listeners get a better picture of what all the liver is actually doing, we can see more why being overfueled and clogged could be a problem.
0: Yeah. You know, this is something to where you can lump or split. You can talk about more pathways or fewer pathways and a lot of subtypes of them. But the general picture is that there's a couple of steps. And in the first step, you're taking something and making it more reactive. So the, the goal is to take whatever's trapped in there, like in this case, these, these, uh, these fat molecules. You want to get them activated and then packaged up with something else and then sent on their way. And both those steps are important. But as a generalization, I talk, we talked about that perfect storm in the modern world. That perfect storm seems to really speed up activation, the, the first phase, and it can have no effect or maybe even slow down the, the binding, the conjugation part. So a lot of the things that the book talked about were ways to help make sure that the first step is not overactivated. You know, it's kind of like you're uh, wanting to get rid of something, but it won't it won't really react until it's turned on, you know, so you've got to turn it on. But if you turn it on and you've got no place to send it out, now you've got these toxins that are worse than they were before, but they're not leaving. So it's really important to have both these pathways working and then working in good proportion to one another.
1: Yeah, I've been fascinated with the phases of the liver, because that was my understanding that when you get the first phase going, you actually make these toxins potentially, or they do become more toxic to the body. So if they're not dealt with in the later stages, then not, it's not a good scenario to be in. So how, how can we support those detox phases? Cause I know, man, I do so much research and I like read about all these different herbs and supplements and, you know, some stimulate the first phase and some help the second Uh and do you think that there is a way to support that with specific supplements or is it better to do an overall approach of just decogging the liver in general or what are your what are your thoughts on that?
0: You know, I don't know, I might might be dating myself, but over the over the decades, I just get more excited about how can food and lifestyle work and I've had so many disappointments to where we get excited about this supplement or that one based upon a mechanism, based upon hypothesis, and then a large human study is done, and it turns out, nope, it didn't work, or it worked the opposite way. So there are certainly many things that can have their place supplementally, but, but yeah, by and large, that can happen through food. So in the diet, this often comes down to the ratios between all those things that make fuel and all those things that provide the carriers that get junk out, which are by and large, the proteins and the amino acid sources. So yeah, getting those proportions right, also getting a real nice array of diverse types of fiber, not just total fiber, but a lot of fiber diversity that goes a long ways towards helping those those pathways work well also.
1: Okay. I'm so glad to hear you say that um, because like I said, I am always researching all the supplements, but I feel like in the ideal world, we wouldn't need any supplements. <laughs> we would just get it from, you know, real food, dietary lifestyle approaches. You were speaking briefly about like protein being needed to support the liver. So would you like to talk a little bit briefly about what the liver actually does require to do its functioning and then how we can actually implement an approach to support it while also decogging it? Because I, it can seem like kind of difficult to both provide the liver with energy and substrates, but then not over-provide energy and substrates. So it's quite a puzzle to figure out, which thankfully you have
0: your book. <laughs> So so, dude, you totally figured this stuff out. <laughs> you completely got the nuance of all this. So yeah, and that that's just it. So the energy and substrates, that's the fuel. And people think a lot about why not just fast and make everything better. And it it seems intuitively to make sense, but, but yeah, you mentioned the drawback is that when the liver is working in general, it needs various building blocks and substrates. But when it's working harder to clear a backlog, if anything, it only needs those more and many of those come down to essential amino acids. So a common pitfall is someone can go on a diet that's just really low in food overall, and they might see a really exciting change on the scale at first. You know, we always hear about the water weight that's lost, and it's kind of misleading. So it's not so much that it was just random water that was sitting around doing nothing, it's by and large glycogen. So another difference about glycogen as a stored fuel is that it's it's hydrophilic. It carries a lot of water and it's a lot less space efficient. It takes a lot more room. So when someone dumps out their glycogen stores, they can lose a lot of weight and it's not, yeah, it's not just random water. It's more so that, that carbohydrate store. And if you look really closely at inches, it's often not that there's as much dramatic loss around the waist as it is overall weight loss, but that's, that's the big difference that way. And 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 yeah, I actually got lost on where I was. (laughs) I got in that direction. My apologies.
1: Actually, I do have a a tangent question that I've always wondered. As far as glycogen storage goes and water retention, is that only the glycogen that's stored in the muscles that adds on that extra water? Because I know um, I feel like some people, especially when they're doing like fasting type protocols or they're doing more limited carb approaches that they might just be filling their liver glycogen rather than relying on muscle glycogen. Do you know if liver glycogen, A, is it processed different from muscle glycogen and B, does it come with that water weight as well?
0: Well, so how much glycogen you store and how it's preferentially gained or lost from your liver to your muscle tissue, that's a function of how how activated the muscle tissue is, how active the glute four receptors are. So that's a lot of exercise or training. If someone's highly trained, their muscles can suck up a lot of glycogen and store quite a bit of that. The liver's a little more finite in that what it stores is more a function of its mass, which is largely a function of just total total body size and uh, and roughly of body composition. So yeah, your liver can hold a certain amount. Your muscles have a lot more leeway based upon just just training and training adaptations. So but when you are seeing that water weight loss, it is coming from both of those places.
1: Gotcha. Going back to the the puzzle to figure out of how to properly fuel our liver but not overfuel our liver, mm. <laughs> um, support our liver but not oversupport it. So what does that look like practically? And you do discuss this in great detail in your book, but for somebody who's looking to declog their liver, get back their liver health, what type of dietary approach would you advocate that they try? Which, again, listeners, get the book because it's all in there, <laughs> but um, <laughs> just you. so they have an idea.
0: So, the Cliffs notes of that are getting adequate protein while limiting total fuel intake but still getting a lot of micronutrients, which you get from a diversity of different plant foods, especially. And then one quick orienting concept too is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage the listeners to expect that a normal day's maintenance diet would achieve those goals. You know, it really does take doing things in a way that deliberately is shortchanging your fuel needs, but still supplying these building blocks. And a healthy maintenance diet shouldn't be expected to do that. It's more of a deliberate thing you set out to do with a finite time frame.
1: So it's a very calculated approach, for sure. Because, I mean, if you're not being careful, I feel like things could could be, you could potentially do a lot of damage if you are undersupplying nutrition and calories at the same time. I mean, that could be very, very bad. So I feel like it's very important to have an approach where you are supplying all of the substrates that you need.
0: Yeah, on a day-to-day basis in most cases. And the data is a little ambiguous as far as exact time frame, but clearly when you're talking about more than six weeks of being at a big deficit, a lot of negative things happen. You do start to impair both of those facets of your metabolism and you often disrupt the body's stress regulation pathways. So if you do it well, you can do it for a brief period of time and affect some desirable change, but not create negative harm. But you shouldn't expect to live in a state of ongoing progressive weight loss.
1: For your protocol, I know you've practiced this with so many patients what do you see with your patients? Do you see that they do radically improve their liver, and how would also how would you how would one quote know uh-huh. if their liver is improved? I mean, do you encourage like liver enzyme testing or is it more just overall general health um, but what do you see in your practice and what type of testing would people want to do if that is a route to go?
0: yeah, someone certainly can do the diet and not have to do thorough blood tests, but any adult I would argue should have a relationship with their their chemistries and a healthcare practitioner and they should see these things on a regular enough basis and I do talk in there about how even lab values that are in the normal range can be indicative of early liver issues so so yeah those things do improve and people can know that the liver is getting healthier based upon that the other simple metric I talked about was the height to waist ratio so just how tall we are versus how long the circumference is around our belly buttons that's a strong easy indicator of liver health. And then also subjective changes. The part, the single testimonial that excites me the most is when someone writes in after doing this months in the past and says, hey, yeah, I had these early pounds of weight that came off and these early changes to energy, which were good, but now I'm six, seven months out and I'm not as mindful of my diet as I was before. I'm eating good food and being deliberate about that, but I'm not micromanaging it. And I'm maintaining my weight just fine and my energy staying steady. So that, that's the coolest part. When someone shows signs of a clear change that lasts, that, that's the best sign of it being successfully completed.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely amazing and encouraging. Talking about healing the liver, I know a lot of people are familiar with the idea that the liver can regenerate itself. Is it true that it is the only organ that can regenerate itself? That's always like thrown around.
0: Well, only would be strong, but it's amongst the most, if you can make a continuum, because everything regenerates, you know, like right now, the bags of skin that we define as ourselves, if we went back to June of 2018, those same bags of skin carried less than a few percent of the atoms that they carry right now. So we're really almost like one point in a river, you know, you've never put a stick in the same river twice, or Our bodies are kind of like that. So everything does regenerate. But some things have just really great capacity to have big change. So, for example, people can donate liver tissue. You can lose, theoretically, 80% of it. And given reasonable health, that remaining part can grow right back again. And that that's not true of other organs. You can donate a kidney, but you can't donate half of the kidney and have your other half come back. That is
1: very reassuring, though. <laughs> it's wonderful news for the liver,
0: <laughs> liver lovers.
1: And um, how long does the actual regeneration of the liver and declogging it and the whole process typically take? And can anyone, can anyone heal their liver?
0: Well, uh, I always try to avoid absolute terms almost always. I, I <laughs> so, agree. <I> agree. <laughs> and I've, I've seen, I've seen late stage liver disease. I'm sorry to say, and I've seen just how it can be a real tragedy when someone's, uh, Hoping for transplant, but doesn't receive it or or pass or fail the transplant so so for sure those things happen, but those aren't things that you would walk around and have happening and not know about so the things that could happen that wouldn't be at that level of transplant by and large can get better and in terms of time frames, you know i don't have good numbers on the more garden variety Early levels of clogged liver, early liver disease, but rather progressed liver damage when it's acute, like from Tylenol overdose, there's pretty good data on that that shows that 28 days is really all it has to take. So some of those worst scenarios can change in that time frame. So given that, I've confidently stated that the lesser scenarios can change then, if not quicker.
1: That's really motivating. Less than a month, 28 days. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk a little bit more briefly about what the protocol looks like? as far as what people are eating during the day. I love what you talk about how like the actual meals, they have a protein and a fuel and a veggie. So I'd love if you could um talk a little bit about that. But there's also like the shake aspect as well. So what does it sort of look like practically?
0: Yeah. So I spent a lot of time trying to iron this out and the goals of the grams of protein that work well relative to the total fuel intake, the micronutrients, its it was tricky. And achieving the grams of protein, you know, one could just throw in a lot of chicken or a lot of meat, but the drawback is it ended up being rather specific in some micronutrients, but lacking in a lot of diversity from plants. And another pitfall, if there was too much animal protein, is that the the body does have a certain acid burden that it clears during times of rapid fat loss. There's a lot of waste like uric acid that are stored. So I want it to be less of an acid burden as well, then the pitfall about some other foods is that many other sources of protein carry quite a bit of fuel. You know, beans are wonderful protein, but they're five parts of carb to one part protein. So they're, they're not going to help that protein to fuel ratio. And nuts and seeds, same story. They're great foods, but they're more so fat than they are protein. So also not to push that ratio in the right direction. And then the other thought was during a time like this, people are eating less food and no bones about it. The first several days of that can be tough. You're hungry or not used to that. So I wanted it to have fewer moving parts and not like a zillion rules to memorize and complicated things to do. So crunching all that together, I built this around making a shake, which you can do one for breakfast, one for lunch, even the exact same one, and then a pretty good evening meal. And you've got the option of some unlimited food snacks if need be between those times
1: well i could really tell in reading the book <laughs> that you really did your homework obviously and that there was so much time spent creating this plan because like you said it it is difficult to you know find the right approach which will cover all the bases while still providing not too much fuel so i mean there's just so much there i don't think i think it would be very hard for somebody to take this you know general concept and uh, and just figure it out themselves I think it is pretty important to have, you know, a nice guideline that you can follow. And there's tons of recipes in the book as well. So listeners, <laughs> definitely check and it the, out.
0: And I guess something that's important to me too is that you know we've we've tested this, we've we've seen, we've done trials, we've seen the outcomes. And so I'll often get questions about, you know, what if I do this part different? And they might be questions that this sounds like a totally plausible idea. And I have to say, well, it's kind of like making a cake. You know, I, I use these ingredients and the cake comes out like this. If we change them, not sure if it'll come out the same way. So the cool thing is that it's, it's tried and true, and we know that it can work well in in that format. And other formats might work, might not, but we know that this one can.
1: Also, I'd love to go a little bit more detail to the different macronutrients. So you're speaking about protein. This is something I research a lot and sort of obsessed with. How important or how much does the the actual composition of the various amino acids of various types of protein affect a person? Like I know like you know, some meats will be higher in like methionine or the different the different ones. And I've heard that you should, you know, limit certain versions and that can also relate, that can affect like mood or anxiety. Or do you think people should just gravitate towards the proteins that make them intrinsically feel best? Or do you think the actual specific amino acid composition should be taken in mind?
0: Well, if you're in the ballpark of quality proteins, then I don't think it becomes quite as critical because that's that's more stuff the liver does sort out. If if you're talking about very poor quality proteins that are just devoid of things that the body cannot make, that's different. But if you've got the basic building blocks there, then their proportions can be adjusted by by a a reasonably healthy body. You know, the methionine, super quick point on that. This is a funny paradox is that there's two ways you can think about the relevance of total protein and also types of protein. You can think about that in terms of health span or lifespan. So health span is, uh, let's say that, your potential genetic potential is 110, 120 years. You know, do you make it there? Or do you die early of a heart attack? That's your health span. And then there's this idea that perhaps if we have some version of caloric restriction or, you know, something along those lines, that maybe we could go past 120 years to 150 years. So that would be a change in the lifespan. And there are some some chemical animal models from which we base the idea of extending the lifespan via protein restriction or methionine restriction. But so far, we have really strong human evidence that the elderly who are higher on their protein intake have a higher rate of achieving a good lifespan. So, yes, yeah, so stronger evidence shows that protein, especially later in life, is a big win for lifespan and less frailty, less chronic disease. And there, there's hypothetical evidence about it changing I'm sorry, health span. Yeah, and the hypothetical evidence about it changing lifespan, but so far we don't really have that data vetted in humans just yet.
1: Yeah, I'm so fascinated by the relationship between protein and longevity because I think more and more now people are advocating lower protein intakes for longevity. Yeah. But I, for like from my understanding and from the research I've done, I I think it's, and I mean. I'm completely open to new research, and I'm, my thoughts might change on this. But currently, I'm just thinking the problem might not be overall amount of protein, just if you're hitting yourself with protein constantly, so you're constantly in this anabolic, stimulating, growth promoting state, versus having maybe still a lot of protein, but not, you know, constantly in our ever-fed society.
0: Well, and you you got to pull apart longevity, to health span, and lifespan. So those are those are more so lifespan arguments. And the healthspan arguments are pretty much the opposite. And there's a lot of human data around that. So you always have to weigh is that animal data we're talking about or animal models or human data and you know healthspan versus lifespan, they're both parts of longevity. So yeah, it's an intriguing thing.
1: I personally love my proteins. So I'm always on the, <laughs> the team protein plan. <laughs> so that's protein. How about fat? Because I think especially with dietary fat, there's this idea that we need to eat fat to burn fat. But something that you discuss in your book is that it's not quite that simple and that there's actually a difference between beta oxidation. So breaking down energy and getting it from fat that we eat versus lipolysis, which breaking down fat cells and getting energy from that fat. So what's the deal with fat? Do we need to eat fat to burn fat?
0: Well, short answer is no. And the funny thing too is that we can never not eat fat. We can never not eat carbohydrate. Even foods that we think about as being a food that's fat free, for example, it still has some fat. You know, grains have fat, you know, vegetables have some fat. We can never be devoid of it. But the body has gets fat from three places. There's the fat that we get from just fat cells turning over. Remember about the whole You know never put a stick in the same river twice our body's always turning over so fat cells turn over really fast they're always breaking down releasing triglycerides in the bloodstream and if we're at a state of energy balance they're getting new ones in at about that same rate so there's parts of fat coming in and out of fat cells but the part coming out that's one big source of fat in circulation and to our livers it's just the fat that we're normally letting go of the other source is just from the diet and again, we'll always have some, even if we're not eating huge amounts of oils and butters, there's always fat coming in. The third thing is called de novo lipogenesis. I don't want to digress too far, but that's the process by which carbohydrates turn into fat. And it's kind of interesting aside, it it does work in humans, but to such a small degree, people are often shocked. Um, and also the other shocking part about it is that the more someone is obese or overweight, the less active their de novo lipogenesis tends to be. Uh, Typical people, actually the highest amount ever recorded, it was a woman who is a Native American, a Pima Indian, and she was given a 660 gram dose of glucose, which is a lot. It's like, you know, it's it's, it's more than your days. It's like probably twice her day's caloric intake all at once in just pure glucose. And of those 660 grams, her body managed to convert about 20 of those grams into fat. So she made about 20 grams of fat from about 660 grams of glucose. Most people max out between five or so, five grams. So it's pretty minimal. But, but yeah, so we, we, we never don't have fat. And our bodies don't have to, it's not that they forget how to use fat because they always are. And whether we're eating it or not, we're still getting tons of it from ourselves and we're always getting some from the diet.
1: I'm so glad you brought up the de novo lipogenesis because that's something I've thought a lot about. It's because people will often say, oh, if you eat too many carbs, the carbs are turning to fat, when really that's not necessarily the case.
0: They've done some tracer studies, and the funny thing is this is not really different for fructose either. But in tracer studies, if someone, let's say that their diet is just whatever it is, they're eating a break-even diet, and they add carbohydrate on top of their diet they can gain body fat, no doubt about that. But when you actually trace where each molecule goes, the, what happens is that extra food just caused the body to quit burning whenever fat was coming in and, and to just more aggressively store any fat in circulation. So your total food intake being above a threshold will stop you from burning any fat. And in that case, the fat, even from the most low-fat diet, is just directly stored as fat. So, so yeah, you can overeat on any kind of food, but but there's actually not a chemical property by which carbohydrates or even fructose are are efficient packages that become made into fat. I
1: just find that fascinating because I think it just flies in the face of what people think as far as carbs and weight gain. But it's much more complicated, obviously, than carbs turning to fat. Yeah. Speaking of the of <laughs> um, <laughs> gluconeogenesis, something mm-hmm. I've always wondered. Is that stressful for the liver if for some reason we are using the gluconeogenesis process especially this comes up with people like um doing ketogenic diets or maybe yeah. they're doing you know super high protein intakes questions about it A is it stressful for the liver B I've heard that it occurs automatically and then I've heard that it only occurs on an as needed basis that like basically if you don't need the glucose but you have a high protein intake that that won't be converted to, glu- um, to glycogen?
0: Well, you know, one more, one more nuance is that almost all these chemical pathways, it's almost never all or nothing. So we almost always have all of them occurring at once, believe it or not, but the proportions can be radically different. So gluconeogenesis, this is funny, it's not so much deriving from dietary protein. That's, that's not an effective pathway for it. Sadly, it's more so from skeletal muscle tissue. So it is, it's not so much a stress on the liver to do so, but it involves the stress response pathways. So the process is highly mediated by cortisol. And there's a diurnal cycle with cortisol, but the liver itself makes more cortisol. The, the liver has an enzyme called 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase that can convert cortisone, which is an inactive adrenal hormone that's always in circulation. The liver can grab that and make that into cortisol. So in states where the liver needs to undergo gluconeogenesis or make new glucose, it simply takes more cortisol and utilizes that to break down stored proteins from skeletal muscle tissue and then convert that to glucose. And it's an example of how glucose is non-negotiable. You know, we can say that it's not essential, but that doesn't mean that we don't need it. It just means that we don't need it from the diet. And if we don't get it from the diet, we get it from our muscle tissue.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so speaking to that, like ketogenic diets, for example, what are your thoughts on them? How do they affect the liver? What's happening there?
0: You know, the data as far as how how they affect the liver function over periods of time, we have no long term human studies to to base on that. But we do know that the liver is is one one of the few parts of the body that can't utilize ketones as a fuel source. So when you are in a low fuel state. And now you're unable to really have an energy source that would be expected to create more more stress and more metabolic strain and in the absence of a low fuel state there's some that think that just by default of forming ketones somehow that makes your body burn fat and it's really it 's really the quite it's the exact opposite of that so ketones are what are formed when your body is unable to burn fat and you can gain weight just fine on a ketogenic diet it's only when you're below your body's energy needs that you ever tap into fat stores. And it's harder to do that because ketones, they're they're just what you make when you couldn't burn fat anyway. You make them to another fuel type. It's like you swap unleaded into diesel. And so, yeah, ketones are diesel and fat is unleaded. They're just different fuels.
1: So some follow-up questions about that. So the idea that taking in like MCTs, for example, I mean, that's always posited as providing instant fuel for the liver is it is it not? Like through the through the ketone process. Is that incorrect?
0: Well that, that is incorrect. It's not a fuel utilized by the liver at all.
1: It's just processed by the liver and then
0: It's not even processed, it's distributed. And MCTs, same thing. They're they are ultimately another version of a fuel. And if the body's in a high fuel state, they can they end up being stored as fat. They can't be used effectively by the liver as a fuel by its cells. And if you're in a low fuel state, then they're just part of the things that you are burning and running through the various pathways.
1: Fascinating.
0: Yeah, all these energy molecules, fructose, MCTs, ketones, we always think that one of them is good and one of them is bad. And it's just the whole fuel load. and. I I don't quite break down to calories because, like we've mentioned, protein plays out a little differently. But all those fuel molecules, you can have too much, too little of any of them. One one thing that I do think about that's relevant is your intake of fiber diversity and your intake of micronutrients. And, you know, there are some things that are high-fat sources that are really good sources of fibers and micronutrients, like nuts and seeds, for example. And there's other foods that have other good micronutrients, like fish. Um, essential fats it's really easy to meet your needs for essential fats Uh, we never really hear of essential fatty acid deficiency the body can pretty much make omega-6 out of most any substrates and we can run low on omega-3s and it can be suboptimal but overt deficiency states have never been documented in humans so it's it's good to get healthy amounts of omega-3s in the diet and some omega-6s but that's a pretty easy bar to cross and then all the diversity of plant foods that don't tend to have as much fat they have so many more other micronutrients or types of fiber that it makes sense to leave room in the fuel load to have plenty of them as well
1: friends you guys know i love wine do you love wine i've done a lot of research on wine and i truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with dry farm wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine, and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing, and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair, and it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD, and historically, The most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first, as like, a barrier i can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done plus with the ivs you have to sit there for potentially hours so basically ivs were a no-go for me so like i said i was doing the shots but i was like i wish there was an easier way to do this then a company called ion layer reached out to me anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com/ionlayer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches. Totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels and I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com/ionlayer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to Melanie to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly; an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right: unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Yeah, not to get on too many tangential rabbit holes here, but <laughs> that's something I've been researching a lot recently is the, well, the, infla- the potentially inflammatory nature of polyunsaturated fats in general and the argument for letting the body naturally create the ratio of omega-6s and omega-3s that it would need from other substrates?
0: Well, so a a big paradox with that one is that's another place where there's a lot of conversion that occurs in the body. A lot of that is by the desaturase family of enzymes. And the more fat we consume, the more demand there is on those enzymes. So paradoxically, higher fat diets, people on the highest fat diets, they have the most difficult time Converting a variety of internally made fats. Like they, they have the hardest time, for example, converting uh, ALA from flax oil into DHA or EPA. But when there's less fat consumption, there's less demand, there's less things that have to be desaturated. So there's often a, a better spectrum of essential fats present, believe it or not.
1: I, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it, not that it's making your body lazy, but that's what it kind of sounds like to me in a way. I mean, because if you're taking in all of these, fats you're not well
0: a lot of a lot of fats that are not necessarily nutritionally dense that are just empty calories uh just just various fats to process like palmitic or stearic or oleic acid high amounts of those still have to be desaturated and so when they're desaturated there's less capacity to desaturate fats that could be made into more more relevant subtypes
1: so fascinating <laughs> i think that's something that <laughs> is going to become more and more I don't know, researched or talked about is this whole concept, especially like polyunsaturated fats and, you know, the role there. Because for the longest time, I feel like people were really saying, you know, take all the fish oil and all these things when I think it might be a little bit more complicated than that, not to even talk about the potential of toxins in that as well. Continuing with our paradigm shifting, you talk about how A, ketones and I guess even ketosis can occur even in the presence of a high carb diet,
0: for sure, because
1: it's more about the the low fuel, mm-hmm. and you also talk about how glycogen, which is coming from carbs most likely, can also help us burn fat. So I think that's a radical shift for a lot of people. Um, so is it true and possible that? You don't necessarily have to do a high-fat, low-carb diet to burn fat or create ketones.
0: You know, the funny thing is that you can talk about plausible models in a million ways, almost like a connect-the-dots that aren't numbered. You can connect the dots in different ways. So I think a lot about just human studies. And there was a study done in which you, you probably read one of, the, one, one of the Hall studies in which participants were put in two groups. They were given a controlled caloric intake, and one group was on a ketogenic diet, and one group was on a very low-quality Higher carbohydrate diet, like a quarter of the calories are from processed sugar. It was like not a good quality diet, and overall it was like fifty to fifty-five percent carbohydrate, but it was calorically controlled. And it was funny because it was not set to be a weight loss study. But whenever participants are in calorie-controlled environments, even at a high calorie load, it often ends up being less food than they eat on a regular basis. We, we eat so much more than we realize. But the the finding of that was the the fat, the overall changes were very similar from each group, but the actual body fat loss was higher in the group on the high processed carbohydrate diet. And they've also done studies in which you can do studies that look at if fat, if the body is burning fat, is that fat from your body or fat from your diet, you can differentiate that. And some studies just looked at the rate of fat burning and failed to differentiate. And they'd say, oh yeah, on a low Carb diet, they're burning much more fat. And that seemed very encouraging. But then when the studies differentiated burning dietary fat versus burning stored body fat, it was completely true that isochloric low carbohydrate diets would be burning more fat. They were just burning the fat they were eating. But when you look at the differentiation, there was more dietary fat burned on low carbohydrate diets, but there was more total fat and more body fat burned on the uh, isochloric lower fat diets. So you're burning Less, I'm sorry, less fat total, but more body fat. So a lot of the fat that's being burned when you're eating a lot of fat is just the fat that you're eating. It's like you pour kerosene in your gas tank where your car is going to burn some kerosene. That's all.
1: <laughs> Technicalities. I think I think there's a big <laughs> disservice in the terminology. It's unfortunate that the word fat, that we use the same word for dietary yeah. fat and body fat. I think if if we had two different words there, I mean, it it, it could probably change. I mean, it could change like how people view fat
0: Completely, triglyceride should be a different term too. Yeah, for sure.
1: Boy, <laughs> semantics.
0: I've got a Walter Mitty fantasy of taking just shutting down society for about a year and fixing a lot of random things. And one of those is language. The fact that we have so many words that create confusion by having just redundant meanings like that. It's
1: so true. Or like the word calorie.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. So much there. It's so loaded with baggage.
1: Or even carbs. All all of these things. All of these things. <laughs> This is a question I know that a lot of people are going to want to know the role of caffeine and alcohol in the liver. So caffeine, what are your thoughts on caffeine?
0: You know, a healthy liver, no, no big issues. Typical amount people consume. Uh, most of the average sources of that we take in are probably high sources of polyphenols, uh, the, the teas and the coffees. There's a lot of range in which how we break down caffeine from person to person, how we respond to that, how it affects our cardiac rate. But for almost all people, the amounts they would probably be consuming has neutral or some net positive effect on a day-to-day basis.
1: Okay, so there, there is a place <laughs> for for one's <laughs> coffee in their, in their liver health.
0: I, I don't happen to be in that continuum of good metabolizers, but most people are. <laughs> oh, I know.
1: I, I mean, I feel like I already knew this, but I've done like my genetic testing and basically it told me that I'm, yeah, very slow metabolizer of caffeine. So <laughs> I will, I'm not even kidding. I will have like a spoonful of coffee in the morning, like a spoonful. And then I'm good. I think <laughs> That's funny. It's almost, I think, like has a, a minute hormetic type effect. Just having that really small stimulant kind of gets things going.
0: I could probably tolerate a spoonful. If I did it much more, it would throw me off. But I'm about in your boat without.
1: Alcohol. I know that's a loaded question. Do you think there's no room for alcohol in liver health or is moderate alcohol intake possible? Does it depend on the state of your liver? I mean, I know we see very long-lived societies with moderate alcohol intake, so I think clearly it can, you know, be in the lifestyle, but what are your thoughts on alcohol and the liver?
0: You know, something I'd say pretty similar, liver with normal liver function, there are those that have the uh, acetaldehyde enzyme deficiencies that get more of a flush and have more esophageal cancer risk. This is more common in Asian populations, but apart from things like that, and I guess also like uh, American Indian populations, Native American populations, we see other, other risks that are more predominant. But most Europeans, most other ethnicities, a certain amount doesn't have a big effect upon liver function. You know, excessive amounts for anyone can be can be harmful. A, a question that I guess is more pertinent to the book that I wrote was about how these things. If we're if we're making this artificial situation to try to let the liver fix itself, what role do these things play? And during that twenty eight day process, I do encourage avoiding caffeine and alcohol just to maximize all the factors aligning phase one, phase two pathways, and also supporting glycogen repletion in the liver. And one thing about alcohol we don't hear much is that it does actively break down stored glycogen in ways to where the liver runs out of that fuel. And that's a big part of the later stage fatty liver disease is just that depletion of liver glycogen.
1: I do have a question about that. Would that not be a benefit to have the alcohol deplete the glycogen so then you have more room to when you have your meal, store your glycogen? you
0: know it's a logical question, but the the difference there is that we glycogen is not so much the culprit, it's more so triglycerides. so glycogen there's we can't store a lot, and we don't have limit we have very limited space for it, so we never we never really get too much glycogen because it's it's got like a set place it's going to go in and we've it's there, it's not there, but it, it can't overflow basically. it can't leak out of where it belongs. but triglycerides there's almost no limit. They can Glycogen can only build up in small compartments, vesicles made for it within the cells. Triglycerides, you can form new vesicles, and you can also put it between the cells. So, And then triglycerides depend upon glycogen to get broken down. So the pitfall is really an overgrowth of triglycerides within and between the liver cells, especially between the cells, and then a lack of an adequate proportion of glycogen to beta-oxidize those triglycerides. So yeah, so lack of glycogen is really one of the earlier steps of alcoholic liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease.
1: Okay, gotcha. And then there's a whole other aspect to your book. You do address a lot of the lifestyle factors as well. You know, it's not just the diet. There's also the stress factor. There's sleep. There's, I mean, there's so many things. What are your cliff note thoughts on the other environmental and lifestyle factors that also need to be taken into consideration beyond the diet,
0: yeah, they're big things. Both in terms of the logistics, um, one thing is that when you embark upon a diet, your your energy, your cravings, your mental focus, those things are they're no joke and they're for real. And if they're bad enough, they will derail your best efforts. You know you can't you can't hold your breath as long as you want, and the same way you can't control your food intake when those things are working against you. So, in one sense, those are factors that help you do better during a routine, during a time of dietary change. And then there's also ways in which they work just independent of all that, especially sleep and liver function. So back to glycogen, the timing of that is also critical. It seems that we need long breaks without surges of cortisol to replenish those liver glycogen stores. And that means quiet, restful, steady sleep and consistent, consistently timed sleep. So yeah, one one action step I encourage is that if if nothing else just wake up at the same time each day that's like step 1 towards getting a better circadian rhythm and better restorative sleep
1: i love that i think that takes a little bit of the stress off i mean i know there's the idea with circadian rhythms that we are best suited to being early risers and early to bed but i don't know i'm are you are you an early bird because i am a, <laughs> i'm a night owl
0: i'm i'm a pretty pretty ridiculously early bird. (laughs) I'm
1: so jealous. I am so jealous every single time. I, I, I mean, I will make so many like concentrated efforts to become a morning person, and I mean, it just it never pans out. I always naturally gravitate back to the.
0: You know, my my sleep expert friends tell me that it's that's probably not as important of a distinction as to which type that you are and which timing is probably more so the regularity and the consistency and the total amount of sleep.
1: I've heard the concept that those that like staying up later that they have a naturally longer circadian rhythm. I don't know if you've heard this and that, that actually. I've I've heard it.
0: Yeah. I've heard it both ways. And I I don't know, mine, mine has changed at various points of life, but if I, if I always wake up at the same times in the morning, I, I get tired at night, you know, a certain amount of hours later and I fall asleep naturally. And then, then I wake up and I, I, yeah, I think that if it's just consistently, it tends to change. And I guess one thing that I do think, uh, so make up some math, let's say that you sleep for eight hours. So you got 16 hours to deal with. And we've, we've all got a certain number of hours that we we have to spend on, you know, biological needs and uh, you know, eating and self-care, whatnot, exercise. So we've got a certain amount of productive hours to work with, and that's about it. And what I observed in myself and also from talking to people doing patient care is that those spare hours, you know, if you if you get up really early, the things you do with those spare hours are different than the things that most people tend to do with their spare hours if they're late at night. I mean, me at least, if I stay up late, I don't really do productive things with those hours. <laughs> I'll, I'll just. Yeah, I,
1: I do. I, okay, like, so I that's my, different. I get my like creative spur at night, so then I'm like super productive, and then then I can feel like I just could just go on forever, which is the problem because then it's self perpetuating. <laughs> And then, similar to what you were saying, you were saying that um, you naturally get tired, you know, in the evening, yeah, regardless. So even if I wake up, because sometimes I'll be like, I'm going to be a morning person, so I get up <laughs> really, really early, and I'm like, see, now I'll be tired at night. Come nighttime, I don't know.
0: I'm how still- long? How long do you play out the experiment for?
1: Um, I mean, I've been in situations where, for some reason, I was getting up early for certain projects. I mean, maybe like recently like a week but it doesn't it just never i don't know
0: yeah i don't I, know i've i've not seen data saying it's it's important to be one of those patterns or another so
1: that that's what i like i like <laughs> i like the takeaway <laughs> of i think finding a lifestyle that you know is supporting your health and nutrition and not having overstressed state of being is um so key yeah and i purposely <laughs> I purposely didn't ask any questions about the thyroid because that is your, I mean, that's your expertise. You're so amazing about that. And I was I knew that if we talked about it, I i would just.
0: I wouldn't mind doing a few if you had some.
1: Yeah, we could. I was also wondering maybe in the future, if we could come back and have like a thyroid specific episode.
0: That's, that's the next book. And I've been just like super obsessed oh, really? about that. It's a, it's the whole, it's the whole iodine story, like at a deeper level than I've ever even come across. It's, I'm really excited to share more of that whenever we can.
1: Oh my goodness. You just made me so excited. I cannot well, wait. Oh, here's,
0: yay. here's one number that doesn't hasn't existed before, um, but the rate of change of thyroid disease after iodine fortification in the US. So it was actually May 1st, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was May 1st, 1920. It might've been March 1st. Shoot, it was an M month, but it was May or March. It was It was 1924 and it was Michigan that first started fortifying with iodine. And it wasn't a state project. It was an elected project by the public health department. They had a really high rate of goiter. And iodine is a function of ultimately sea access, like ocean access. So if you're a long ways away from it, we talk now about the virtues of food being grown locally. Well, 100 years ago, if your soil was bad, that sucked (laughs) because that's all you had was locally grown food. And you had no variety and no diversity in your micronutrient status. So if you were somewhere like Michigan, where you got a lot of fresh water around you with the Great Lakes, and no coastal access, you've got a substantial risk of goiters developing. And to help with the goiters, they started fortifying with iodine. So there was a doctor in Olston uh, uh, County, Minnesota, who did a diligent dog tracking his patients. They started fortifying about 10 years later. And he tracked patients from 1934 to 1967 and looked at the rate of autoimmune thyroid disease amongst his female patients. And women, right around the age of 39. So their rate of autoimmune thyroid disease. Do you want to guess what the change was over those decades after iodine fortification?
1: i like on the edge of my seat right now, because I, I actually honestly don't know if you're going to say that it helped or hurt. <laughs> like I actually am not quite sure.
0: Well, first first guess which way, then guess how much?
1: I mean, I want to say that it helped, but then what if it's like this twist ending where it, where it hurt?
0: Because I'm asking, you gotta think it's gotta be counterintuitive, mm-hmm. right?
1: Did it? Did it hurt?
0: Well, it changed. It worsened. It. So, okay, yeah, I knew it, it's I knew not it. a coincidence that Hashimoto's was not named O'Malley's disease. And we see the most. It was more most prevalent in Japan. It always has been. They've got the highest iodine intake. And in the United States, in that area, that was that was the the best tracking that we had. And the rate change was twenty six fold. It was a twenty six fold increase over that time frame. Um, yeah. A quick modern corollary, one last thing I'll mention, so Denmark did the same thing, but they did it recently. They did it in the year two thousand and cool thing about it is that it made a really good natural experiment so Denmark's a socialized country. We actually had a Danish foreign exchange student live with us for a year, so we got to really get the culture the cool, cool people, but they they've got central tracking of all medical diagnosis and all medical treatments because it's a socialized medical system, so they can easily punch numbers on how many times. Someone got diagnosed as having Hashimoto's. How many people were prescribed thyroid medications? And they knew that this has been a pitfall in a lot of places that fortified. So they were really on the lookout. And they took some large cohorts before fortification to compare to others afterwards. And also they tracked all these numbers before and after. They looked at it in many ways. Uh, And the upshot of it was from 97, when they started tracking and planning on fortification, to 2016, when the most recent data was reported. Each year after fortification, the rates of Graves' disease, uh, hypothyroidism in general, Hashimoto specifically, thyroid cancer, thyroid surgery, thyroid ablation, and prescription thyroid medications, they've all gone up every year. And the increase has been by 50% or more.
1: Okay. That is fascinating and not what I think a lot of people would expect. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I personally have cut out intentionally cut out iodized table salt for the past, I mean, decade, probably.
0: A bizarre thing is that sea salt may be as much or even more. Sea salt is really inconsistent for its iodine content, I've learned.
1: There's only been, I think, one time that I can remember where I took some sort of, we were talking about supplements in the beginning, um, where I took a supplemental nutrient and so strongly reacted to it that it scared me. And that was when I experimented with taking supplemental iodine per the um, suggestion of my doctor. Actually, my, my eyes turned bloodshot red, which I'd never seen before. And I mean, it scared me and it's made me really fascinated. I haven't done a lot of research, but I would love, I can't wait till your new book comes out and I would love (laughs) to go down this whole iodine route and talk more about thyroid and everything. Do you, do you know sort of when the book will be coming out?
0: Oh, I know exactly when it's going to be January of 2021. It's it's funny in terms of my timing. I'm so jazzed about this book. I told the publishers, look, I'll I'll finish this sooner. And in the publishing world, a lot of the biggest projects are doing because they're excited about this one too. A lot of their biggest projects, they're not wanting to put out in 2020. They expect, they, they, I wouldn't have never thought of this, but they expect the presidential election to suck the wind out of everything else that goes on that year.
1: Oh my goodness. That is so interesting.
0: <laughs> so we're so I'm going to be leisurely writing this book over this next year and going super deep in it. But yeah, I'm really joused.
1: Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Was there did, is there anything that you would like to like tell listeners that we didn't discuss that didn't come up that you feel is really important?
0: You no know, the the questions were great. We covered all the main bases. I guess just the one concept I'd love to leave with him is just the fact that. This is, your liver is critical to this. You know, the the struggle that many have in terms of getting their energy, getting their weight right, having those things both line up. It's not a matter of having to push harder or try harder or defy or or deprive yourself further. If Something's not working right. And it's something you can fix. You can fix it in a short period of time and it can stay stable. So I just want to give people the inspiration to know that those things can improve for them.
1: I'm really glad you brought that up because that actually was one of my questions. I, I think people anticipate that If they're going on some sort of quote detox protocol, that they're going to have to feel miserable, or that there should be, you know, (laughs) that if they have a lot of bad symptoms, that's a sign that they're doing something right.
0: (laughs) Not necessarily.
1: It's really motivating. It sounds like, you know, we can support our liver health, we can quote detox, we can do all these things, and we can feel good while doing it if we have the right protocol in place that's working with our body. Well, thank you so much. So for listeners, the show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com/metabolismreset. So if you go there, I'll put links to any of the studies you mentioned, all of the social media, and links for Dr. Christensen. Is there any links that any links or social things that you'd like to throw out for listeners?
0: You know, something helpful. We can get one that's specifically for you for this, but we do a we do a free challenge every month. If someone's curious about these ideas, they can come on in and learn everything they need to know for free and get a get guided through a week's worth of the challenge and if they find it helpful they can choose to do more and go further with it but yeah i'll give you a custom link for that and you can share that
1: oh perfect i will definitely do that so the link will have the link in the show notes and um my last question that i ask every single guest on this on this podcast and it's Not exactly related, but it sort of is. And it's just because I've realized how important mindset is for health and how our thoughts really affect our biology. So I was wondering, what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Something I'm grateful for? Wow. You know, this is tangential, but no, it's not. But the thoughts in biology, I guess I'm really grateful for having had the chance to learn about thoughts and getting some perspective on them. We we often take them at face value. And there's a lot of different training methods out there. I've gained a lot from ACT therapy, which is a subset of cognitive behavioral therapy. And you can you can learn how you don't have to really attach to your thoughts or fuse with them, but they can, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. And when they're not helpful, it's cool to be able to let them do their thing and you keep doing your thing. So So yeah, I'm grateful to have the capacity to not, not feel identified with my thoughts at all times
1: (laughs) that is wonderful i couldn't agree more it's really amazing once you start realizing that you know you are not your thoughts and you are not the voice in your head
0: oh thank goodness
1: (laughs) but thank you thank you so much for being here this was an absolute pleasure and hopefully i can get you back on with the um the launch of your book in 2021
0: i'd love to do that thank you so much melanie
1: all right thank you so much